Now please stand with me to hear the word of God in Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians 3, we are reading verses 15 through 25 today. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 25. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. All of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word today. And we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your word, that we would have a right understanding of the promise that you made and a right understanding of the law that you gave, that we would be able to see these things in the right relationship, and that by doing so, that we would live that life of faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm thankful, brothers and sisters, to have the time to go through this letter of Galatians with you. It is in the, the scriptures for a number of reasons, I believe, that this book was given. Certainly, one of the reasons that God gave us this book is to correct error, and we've talked about error that the book exposes. And, but more than that, it is to show us just how good the good news of the gospel is. We need to understand the riches of our inheritance in Christ. We need to value it. And we are prone to forget these things. Sometimes in the Christian life, our thinking or our behavior, they get out of sync with the gospel. We're not walking in step with the truth of this good news that we have received. We can start thinking wrongly about our relationship with God. 
And then we also sometimes forget the implications of the gospel for our relationships, which Paul will eventually get to in Galatians 5 and 6. One of the reasons that this letter is so important for us is because it acts like an explosive upon every false religion of the world. Basically, every false religion of the world has some sort of component that is merit-oriented and externalistic. It is about gaining, currying God's favor in some way or another, and often by means of very externalistic actions. And so Galatians is the gospel dynamite that explodes those conceptions so that we can understand that we are in right relationship with God by faith in his son. And so by God's help, that is what we need to see once again as we come to this passage in Galatians 3. It is a a complex passage in many ways, but I hope that I can show you that there are some rather simple points that Paul is making in the midst of some more complex language. And these, this passage it should be of something that is of real personal interest to us. We do not want to approach the study of the Bible or the study of this book in particular in a detached kind of way, as if this is just information to be processed, but this is something that has an effect upon your Christian life. The questions that are addressed in this book affect your relationship with God. They affect your salvation. They affect how you relate to God, how you think about God. And so they are important. There are two particular questions in this section that Paul answers for us. So I want to summarize those for you, and then we'll begin to interact with Paul's uh, answers that he gives to these questions. The first question is this. Is the law that God introduced with Moses, does that law change the terms of God's promises made hundreds of years before the law came? To put it in a very simple, straightforward way, does God go back on his promises Does God fail to keep his promises? Does he change the terms of his promise? The answer is, of course, no. God never fails to keep his word. So that's the first question that Paul will deal with. The second is sort of the follow-up to that. If we've answered that God's promise always stands, the question is, then what, what is this law for? Why did he give this law to Moses? What are all these things in the law about What was God intending to do with his law? And so those are the two questions that Paul will answer, and let's go through those now together. We begin with the first one, the question of whether God's promise to Abraham stands. Does it change, or does it not change? Well, God in Genesis spoke to Abraham many times. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17, chapter 22. There's lots of interaction between the Lord and Abraham. And in many of these chapters, God is reinforcing the promise that he gave to Abraham. And if you recall what the promise was, it was that blessings would come to the world through Abraham's descendants. That Abraham was going to have a child of promise. We know that that was Isaac, first of all. And that through this son, and then through all the descendants that would follow, eventually all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham's descendant. And as we learn in this passage, that descendant is Christ. That is the descendant that everybody was waiting for. More than all of the other people, uh, the descendant that is Christ brings blessings to the world. 
So let's look at verse 15. Paul gives an illustration. He often does this. It's helpful when he gives us illustrations to make a point. And he says this, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now when he says, I speak in the manner of men, He's saying, I am going to talk about human relationships for a moment. He's speaking to the Galatians. He says, in a human agreement, particularly a covenant that is made between two individuals, that covenant and its terms were binding. You couldn't make a covenant with someone, an agreement of that nature with someone, and then a few days later say, no, 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 I back out. I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. Paul was saying, you, you brothers and sisters in Galatia, you know that when a covenant is established between two people, it is binding. They can't just change the terms. They can't write up this appendix and, and cancel it in any way. It is a binding agreement. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If between two sinful, fallible human beings, a covenant cannot be changed, it can't be gone back on, then how much more the infallible, all-powerful God will his promise stand? How much more then, Paul says, will God's promise stand? And so that's how he begins. But having said that, he now goes on to remind them and remind us about what the promise is. What is this promise that we should be so excited about and hold fast to as our hope? The promise was that blessings would come to the world through the seed of Abraham. This was relevant to bring up because in the churches of Galatia, there were people that were trying to cancel out the promise. They were saying to the believers in the churches, they said, you have to do this ritual and that ritual if you are to join the people of God. You cannot be blessed in the seed of Abraham unless you do these list of things. And so the Gentiles were being pushed out. They were affected by this false teaching, as all of the people in the churches of Galatia were. And so, in effect, what was happening is that the promise of God was being overturned. And that was a very big problem. So what Paul does is to point us to what the promise was and who the promise was made to. So let's look at verse 16 again. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. This is a fascinating argument that Paul makes. He, he comes to the passage in the Old Testament, and he says to the people of Galatia, you need to pay attention to the form of this noun. <laughs> Look at the form of this noun. It is singular, brothers and sisters. He says this is a singular noun, and you need to understand who it is referring to. This is how Paul and the apostles and Jesus treated the Old Testament scriptures. Paul and, and Jesus and the rest of the apostles believed that the Old Testament scriptures were the words of God, and every single word was inspired by God. You remember Jesus, when he speaks to the Pharisees, he, 
he argues for the doctrine of the resurrection on the basis of a verb tense. He says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Jesus respected the verb tense of the Old Testament. Paul respected the case form of the noun as being singular. Now what this means for us, of course, is it's an example in how we should treat the scriptures, how the reverence, the respect that we should have in our handling of the word of God. Every word matters. Now that as an aside, let's go to the promise itself concerning the seed. And this is drawn from Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 through 18. This is right after Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, and then God reconfirms the promise concerning Isaac, concerning his seed. In Genesis 22, 17 through 18, we read this. It says, Blessing, I will bless you in multiplying. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates, gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now it's true that there were other descendants of Abraham. We know that because he said, as the sand of the seashore, as the stars in the sky. It's more than one person, right? But it is important to note, as Paul does for us, that there is this one person, this one descendant, that would bring blessings to the world. Did the Jews bring blessings to the world on their own? Was it just the fact that they were there in this land and they had these laws of God and that that affected the world? Well, to some degree or another it did. You think of maybe Jonah going to Nineveh. There's a little bit of an effect upon the nations of the earth. But it is not until the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was promised to deliver his people and to bring blessings to the world, that these things start coming to pass. And so the seed, singular, that was really built into this promise is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how the nations are blessed. That is why we are here today, brothers and sisters, receiving the blessings of God, is because the seed of Abraham has come. And he has brought his blessings far as the curse is found. He has made his blessings known. And so, children, this is the first point in your notes. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who brings blessings to the whole world. It says, in your seed shall all the nations be blessed. And this is actually referring to something very important that we've learned about in Galatians, and it is the doctrine that we call union with Christ. That by faith we are united to Jesus and all the blessings found in him flow to us. His atoning death cleanses us of all of our sins. His perfect righteousness becomes ours. His resurrection life empowers us to live for God. All of these things come to us because we are in the seed of Abraham. And so that seed is so important to understanding the promise. Now the next point that I want to focus in on in this first section is the word inheritance. Look at verse 18. Paul is saying that all of these things come by promise. And the inheritance comes by promise. That's what he says in verse 18. For if the inheritance is of the law... 
it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now when you hear that word promise, you need to understand that what Paul wants us to to think here is that when a promise is made by God to his people, what do the people of God have to do to get the promise? Is it their doing? Is it their works that gets them the promise? The point Paul is making is God makes a promise, all the people of God do is believe it. That's what Abraham did. When he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness back in those previous verses, that's all that Abraham did. He believed the promise of God. And it is by faith that Abraham and us get this inheritance that is promised. Now this is very important in its implications for the Christian life, brothers and sisters. How we think about inheritance is very important. How, how do we get this inheritance that God has promised? Well, think of for a moment about human inheritances. Let's say that you have a very wealthy father or mother, and as they, they grow older, uh, you know that they are close to the time of death, and you, you may even know something of the will that con- is contained, and it shows what's going to happen to all of their property upon their death. It's going to be passed on to their descendants. How does that child of the parents come into possession of such an inheritance? Is it gained by that child by working 40 hours a week for those parents for 50 years of their life? Is that how they gain their inheritance? Is it this quid pro quo arrangement that if you do these things, this inheritance will come to you? Is an inheritance like just a big paycheck that we have to work for? Well, that's not how inheritance works normally, when it's, when it's done the right way, perhaps. An inheritance is granted on the basis of your relationship with your parents. It is on the basis of your identity, that if your last name is Smith, and your parents' name is Smith, and you are the descendant of those Smiths, you're going to come into contact in possession of that inheritance by being a descendant of the Smiths. And so it is with our inheritance that God has promised to his people. You come into possession of your inheritance not by means of your meriting this inheritance, but by being a son of the living God, by being a daughter of the living God. And you are a son or daughter of Abraham, which also then means you are a son or daughter of God, as we will find out. It's about identity, brothers and sisters. It's about adoption, being part of God's family. This changes everything if we understand it correctly. And this is the second point in your notes, children, that number two, our inheritance comes through Jesus as a free gift because we are sons and daughters of God. Now when I say inheritance, what are we talking about here? What do we get? What are we looking forward to? Is it just a a $20,000, $30,000, $100,000? Well, don't think numerically. Don't think about dollars. This is so much greater than that. And it's even greater than inheriting the land of Israel, which Abraham, of course, was promised that. But as we read in Romans 4, he's heir of the world. That's a very big inheritance, isn't it? And we get to partake of that inheritance as well. Now, when we think in terms of inheritance, we need to be thinking about the blessings that God has promised to his people. He has promised us fellowship with him forever. That's way better than money. 
fellowship with God forever. Eternal life. Joys unspeakable. Eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has promised to those who love him. You don't even have a, a bare, the barest conception of what is coming to you if you have believed in Christ. A new heavens and a new earth filled with joy, with peace, with righteousness, and all the good things of this earth that you'll eventually get to enjoy. Sometimes we talk with our kids about the new heavens and the new earth. We talk about how good an apple tastes or how good an orange tastes. And I'm thinking the apples and the new heavens and the new earth are going to be really, really good. And it's okay to think about even the physical blessings that will come in the new heavens and the new earth because it is a physical existence. And all of this is wrapped up in this inheritance that comes as a gift, as a gift package from the Lord Jesus Christ if you believe in the promise that he has made. And therefore, the implications of understanding how we come into our inheritance, that it is by promise and receiving it by faith, should have a number of effects upon our Christian life. The first is that we need to remember that we are children of God. We'll talk about that in verse 26. He's going to get to that very clearly in the next passage. But as children, we should have such confidence and security knowing that God is our Heavenly Father. Our standing with our Heavenly Father is not based upon the quality of our obedience, which always falls short. We are not trying to become the children of God by what we do and then trying to keep our status as the children of God to retain our position by means of slaving and sweating away lest we lose our adoption, lest we lose our inheritance. The Father does not just get tired of us as his children and just kick us out and cut off our inheritance. Some parents do that, human parents. But our Heavenly Father doesn't do that. He's good. He, he receives us in His Son. If we have put our faith in this gospel promise that Abraham had received and that we've received in an even fuller way, He does not cast us out. We are secure in His love. And this needs to frame our mentality when it comes to serving our God. Are we anxiously striving towards obedience, afraid that at any point God will just turn away from us, will give up on us? Do we have this slave and master mindset where we're always thinking about God as this hard taskmaster and his word is this burdensome thing and we're always on the edge of failing and we're always getting these D's and the tests and we're just not going to make it. We're not going to get our inheritance. And I found that myself, and perhaps you can relate to this, that we can fall into the wrong mentality about serving our God. We can, we can miss out on the blessings of inheritance and adoption and all of these important concepts that need to frame our thinking. And there's an example of this wrong conception of God, I think, in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents that our Lord t- teaches us. Matthew 25, 40, or 24 through 25. At the, towards the end of the parable, there is the man who received the one talent And when he received the one talent from the master, he buried it in the ground, didn't do anything with it, and then the master comes and is very disappointed. And it says, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. 
Now, the other servants who had talents, they were just serving their master, just investing the talent, growing it. And it didn't matter how many talents they gained at the end. It was because they were, they were received, they had been faithful with what they had been entrusted, and each of them has said, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. But this last servant, the problem was that he thought of the master as a hard man. He thought, this hard, rough taskmaster is so impossible to please that I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to keep the talent here. I'm not going to do anything because I just know that I'll probably be condemned ultimately. This is that kind of wrong perspective, what the Puritans sometimes called a legal spirit. This legal spirit they defined as this idea that I am trying to gain and keep my standing before God by means of my own faithfulness. And it is a very much a slavish mindset and a mindset that is extremely discouraging and depressing because you never do enough in that, in that system. And so we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that we receive our eternal inheritance as a gracious gift by means of promise received by faith in Christ. How do we get the kingdom of God? I so love the words of Luke 12, 32. And it's noteworthy that when Jesus gives this this promise here, this statement, he uses the language of father. Again, adoption being important. He says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's it's the father, the heavenly father, the good father who takes pleasure. It delights his heart to give you the kingdom of God. Is there anything here about working, 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 working to get the kingdom of God? It is given as a gift by a good father to his children. And so there's a big difference between serving the Lord as a child versus serving the Lord as a slave, thinking of the master as a hard master. And so we'll come back to this in the the next message, brothers and sisters, in verse 26 and 29. He's going to say, you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we need to do more with adoption. We'll come back to it. But for now, you see that the promise was how the inheritance was received by Abraham and by Abraham's seed, which is Christ and us in Christ. We are also Abraham's seed. So now we go to the next question that Paul will seek to answer, which is, why then the law? This is verses 19 through 20. We'll begin with verse 19 again. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Okay, so Paul says it was added because of transgressions. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that there was so much sinning going on that the law was added to clamp down on the transgressions. It was meant to come in and restrain the evil of the people to stop them from sinning so much. Well, I do believe that is one of the purposes that the law serves. However, I don't think that's the primary point Paul is making here. That purpose that the law has in restraining evil is pretty limited. It, It does something, but it's not that great at its restraining function. It only goes so far, and and as we will find out here from this passage and from others, sometimes the law just makes things worse. 
in terms of people sinning more. And he's going to clarify that the law was a tutor or guardian to lead us to Christ. And so I think that phrase is explanatory of this phrase, that it was added because of transgressions. So I'm going to suggest that the reason that Paul says it was added because of transgressions is this. Paul says that the law was added to show us just how sinful we actually are. The law was given to show you how bad you are. Paul says something similar in Romans 7, verse 13. He says, Has then then what is good become death to me? The law being a good thing, he says. Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. To paraphrase, he's saying, So that sin might appear as sin, and as really bad sin... The commandment had to show me just how sinful I was. The law is like a mirror. It shows you your true self. Let's say that you have dirt all over your face. And sometimes, you know, kids playing outside, they have dirt all over their face and they're all browned up and and they come in uh, inside and, and their parents or maybe their siblings say, you have dirt all over your face. You need to clean your face off. And they say, I don't have dirt on my face. What are you talking about? And they don't believe people around them until they go into the bathroom and they look at the mirror and they, lo and behold, they have dirt on their face. That's what the law does. You can have all these people around you saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner in this way, and you say, no, I'm not, I'm not a sinner in that way. But then the law of God comes and says, you are a sinner in this way. The law is the great revealer of sin. The law is utterly insufficient to save you from your sin, but it is a very good mirror. Mirrors don't save you, but they're good for the function that they have, which is to show you that you need help, you need deliverance, you are a sinner in need of a savior. And children, this is the third point in your notes, number three, the law is a mirror that shows us our sin and how much we need Jesus Christ. And we'll return to that mirror illustration in just a moment, but I want to give you another picture of what the law does. This is an illustration that another commentator, Richard Lenski, gave, and I thought it was a good illustration. It's kind of a, a vivid illustration of what the law does. He talks about this illustration of a stick and a lion. Okay, so picture these two things. You've got a stick and a lion resting there dormant. Here's what Lenski says. The moment the law meets a sinner, he reacts by transgression because of the sin in him. The law brings it out so that he and all men may see it. While it is latent, sin stirs but slightly. Meaning it's just sitting there within the person. And then he says, it is like a lion who is asleep or is moving about quietly. Apply the stick of the law to prod it a little and its fangs flash. And it rages and roars. It tries to rend and tear. It displays what a wild beast it really is. The stick does not make the beast a beast. It cannot kill or change the beast. All it can do is to show it what it is. You might think, oh, am I a lion with fangs roaring against the law? Well, sometimes we are, indeed. It's a vivid illustration, but the idea of the stick is that you prod the sinner with the law... And it shows what's within them. 
It can even inflame it and make it worse, which is what Romans 7 talks about. And so as I said, the law is the revealer. It cannot fix sin, it cannot kill sin, it can reveal sin, that's all. We learn later in Galatians 5 that you need the Holy Spirit to kill sin. That is absolutely essential. You need Jesus, union with him, and his Holy Spirit to enable you to kill sin. Now let me return to the mirror analogy. Let me ask you this. How often do you look at a mirror in one particular 24-hour period? Well, if your home is like most American homes, which I assume all of us have, have this, every, probably every bathroom in your house has a mirror in front of the sink, right? We're, we're surrounded by mirrors these days. Many people have mirrors in their bedrooms, in their hallways, and, and many of us look at mirrors quite frequently. We, we're used to looking at mirrors to check our appearance, we need to fix our hair, we need to uh, check whether there's food stuck in our teeth, and so we're very interested in the appearance that the mirror reveals to us. Now the question I would ask you in terms of this picture is this, how often do you look at the mirror of God's law? Do you compare yourself to it? Do you read it? Do you pay attention to the law? Are you interested in what it has to say about who you are? Now looking at the mirror of the law should have a few effects. One obvious and important effect is that it will humble you if you look at the mirror of the law and compare yourself to it. You will be humbled by that. You should be driven to confess your sins to a merciful God and to, to by faith, receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ that is promised to you. It should have the effect of producing gratitude in your heart to know that Jesus has saved you from all the condemning effects of this law that would have been against you otherwise. And then having experienced those effects, the Holy Spirit who indwells us will begin to reshape us to do the will of God from an obedient heart. The law no longer condemning us now means that it can be a useful guide to guide us on the way of holiness, serving the Lord. Luther gave a similar picture to the stick analogy. He said, the law is a stick that God first uses to beat a sinner to Christ. It's going to wax you to go to Jesus. And then he says, having received Christ, having been set free from the condemnation of the law, now the stick becomes a cane by which you walk the Christian life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, the, the law can be a tool, a guide in what is pleasing to your heavenly Father. And so the law remains very useful if you use it rightly, if you use it lawfully, allow it to bring clarity to your condition. You need not despair to look into the mirror because you have a Savior sufficient to redeem you from the curse of the law. It can no longer condemn you. Now Paul gives us another picture. He talks about how the law is a guardian or a tutor. Verse 22 through 24. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Paul says that we were confined, basically imprisoned by the law, the people of God were under the old covenant, for a period of time until the promised seed would come, which is Jesus. 
Now, he gives us this picture. He says the law was our tutor or our guardian. And you have different translations of this. You'll find the King James that says schoolmaster. Uh, the New King James is tutor. And the ESV is guardian. Okay, how do we connect all these terms together? What does this all mean? Well, each of those English words has some challenges with it because they have the wrong connotations in our minds. A schoolmaster, we just think of an elementary school classroom with the apple on the desk and a chalkboard and all these little kids sitting in front. Okay, that's not the right picture of schoolmaster, so throw that one out. Tutor, I just think of somebody coming over to your house to help you with your math problems that you're struggling with, so that's not quite the right idea either. And then guardian, we might think of like a legal guardian, someone that takes care of you. That's probably closer in English than any of these other terms. But, but if you have guardian, you actually miss out on the teaching element that this person had in a child's life. And so none of these terms quite get at it, but let's try to bring them all together. The Greek word is pedagogos, which is from which we get the English word pedagogue. And this was a particular profession in the ancient world of Paul's day. A, a wealthier family would have the money to employ a guardian or a tutor that would be over the children of the home. And if the dad was busy doing all of these important things and the mom just didn't really have as much involvement in the child's life at points, there was this guardian that was appointed to take care of the children. And this guardian did a number of things. They, they kept the kids safe, make sure they didn't get hurt or lost. They taught the kids the basic rules of the home. They enforced rules, they taught rules, so there was a teaching element. And they were known to discipline children, sometimes quite severely, in order to keep them in line. And this, this is what Paul is saying the law functioned as for a time. So if you take all three words together, the law was our guardian, our teacher, and our disciplinarian. It had those three functions all together. And the teaching and the disciplining component of the law is particularly important. How did the law teach? Well, we know that there were visual elements of the law that had a very specific purpose. You think of circumcision itself, which was a matter under debate in this letter. What did circumcision do for the people of God? Well, it reminded them that they were sinful and that they needed to be separated from a sinful world and to be made God's holy people. It was a picture of redemption. There's the, of course, sacrifices of the Old Covenant with a daily reminder of you need covering, you need atonement, you need to be reconciled to me through blood sacrifice. So that was a teaching component of the law. The law was also a disciplinarian. It did whack us around quite a bit. It, it had a rod, so to speak, that would discipline us for our disobedience. The moral demands of the law and sometimes the penalties of the Old Testament law appear to us quite severe, quite rigorous uh, in their application. Of course, nothing as severe as eternal judgment in hell, which is taught throughout the Bible, which is the ultimate uh, condemnation that comes if we are not in Christ. But the law was a valuable tutor, a valuable guardian to show us, again, that we need Christ, that the law cannot save us. All it can do is teach us and discipline us until we reach the age of maturity. Now, to use the, the mere analogy once again, I thought of how the law does this, and I was thinking about those 
I was thinking about mirrors and lights. And what I mean by that is, have you ever been under those very bright and very white lights? Some of you probably are familiar with the, we have the yellow lights and then you have this white light. And sometimes I'll go into hotel rooms and they have this big mirror and they have this very bright white light. It's very clinical. And it shines down on you. It's so much brighter than your bathroom at home that you're kind of trepidatious to stand in front of the mirror because you're seeing all these blemishes and imperfections that you don't see under normal conditions. You're thinking, I don't know if I want to look at this. All these blemishes of your face, and you look at one of those really close magnifying mirrors, and you look at that, and you think, I can't look at this very long. This is, this is discouraging. Well, the law can do that. You look very closely into the law, and the law is showing you all your blemishes in great detail. And you, you go through the list of curses, for example, in Deuteronomy, you think, I've done that, and I've done that, and I thought that, and, and the law is having this effect. And, and on one hand, you could feel condemned by the bright, white light and magnifying mirror of the law. But if you remember your standing in Christ, you can look at the mirror. You can receive what it has to say about you. You can confess your sins and you can walk in newness of life. That can all happen. You're not condemned by the bright white light of the law anymore. Remember Romans 8 verse 1 as you look at the law. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so what a blessing that we can look at this very intense, intensive, clarifying, disciplining law with the confidence that comes from being in Christ. And Augustus Toplady, in one of his hymns, which I've quoted before, he says, The tares of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. And so the law is going to show them to you, but they're going to be hid from God in the sense that they will not condemn you any longer. Now, one of the things that we know about children and guardians is this. Children grow up. That's one of the points that Paul makes. Children don't stay children forever. They eventually grow up to the point where they don't need a guardian anymore. The guardian gets worked out of a job, and they've got to go find some other family to work for. And so there's a maturing process that Paul is talking about in our passage the Greek writer Xenophon, writing around 400 to 300 BC, he uses this word and he explains how this concept worked. He said, when a boy ceases to be a child and begins to be a lad, others release him from his pedagogue and from his teacher. He's no longer under them, but is allowed to go his own way. So that was how this system worked in the Greco-Roman world. In verse 25, listen to what Paul says. He says, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, how do we understand these words? We might apply it in a personal sense, but Paul is not primarily thinking personally here. He's actually talking historically. He's saying that the people of God under the Old Covenant had a pedagogue. They had this guardian. But now that faith has come, i.e. Christ has come, you're no longer under a tutor. Does Paul mean there was no faith in the Old Testament? Of course not. We know that because... Abraham is the example of justifying faith. So we, we know that that's not what he means. He is referring to the object of faith coming, Jesus. 
And what this means is that the people of God coming into the new covenant, of which we are members of this new covenant people of God, we're not under a tutor anymore. Does that mean the law is irrelevant? Well, what does it mean? I I believe, first of all, it means that there were aspects of the law of God that were suitable for a season of immaturity. The ceremonies of the law, you might think of in particular, had a teaching function that the people of God have grown up out of. We don't need circumcision as that teaching tool anymore, though we can talk about it. We don't need the sacrifices of the Old Covenant anymore, though we can talk about them. We don't have to do the feasts of the Old Covenant anymore, though we can talk about them and their value. They are not requirements upon the people of God any longer. There are those aspects of the law that were only suitable for that, the ABCs uh, for the people of God. And so Paul even, I think, speaks about this in Galatians 4, verse 3, which I'll, I'll mention briefly. He says... Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. That term, elements of the world, it's a much debated term as to its meaning, but what I think Paul uses it to refer to in Galatians is these external, particular aspects of the law and obedience to those externals as a sort of ABC of religion that Paul says God's people are moving beyond those aspects of the law at this point. The law indeed continues to have value. It has a function. We'll talk about that in Galatians 5 and 6. Paul will make application of the continuing relevance of the law. He'll say something like, circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter at all, but what matters is the keeping of God's commandments. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So there is a sense in which there's parts of the law that have served their teaching function. We've gone through the ABC books. We've gotten the point. Now we have the fullness of the reality in Christ and we do not need those aspects any longer. And so he's saying to the people of God and to us here as the people of God, we are to be those who have grown up, those who have matured out of this particular position and to recognize our adoption, our freedom, the privileges we have in Christ. So to wrap things up, brothers and sisters, I want to bring to bear just the the two key points that we've learned about promise and law. The first thing to remember is that God always keeps his promises. If God said it, he will do it. He will bring it to pass. You can bet all the money in the world on the promises of God. And therefore, the promise of blessing through the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, has happened He has fulfilled his promise and that promise of salvation in the seed of Abraham is extended to everyone in this room to receive it, to believe it, to walk in it. It is the promise of faith in Christ by which we are justified, adopted, and we are promised an eternal inheritance. Secondly, let us remember that God's law is a good mirror It is a good disciplinarian, is it a good teacher to keep us at the foot of the cross. That's where it drives us. It has other functions. It's going to teach us again the way of holiness. But one of the things that the law does is to keep us humble. If we at any point fall into self-righteous notions, the law will put us back in our place. And that piercing white light of the law, the magnifying mirror of the law will remind you of your blemishes 
And it will drive you once again to stay at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. We should abandon all attempts at saving ourselves and say that it is only, my only hope is in this atonement, in this Savior who has died for me. And we must look to that Savior. As John chapter 3 reminds us, where are we to set our eyes? Where are we to look as we are condemned by the law in the sense of what it reminds us about ourselves if we feel that condemnation? John 3 verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. The law will not condemn, but you will have everlasting life. Amen. Let us pray in light of what we've learned today. Our Father in heaven, you are the God of promise, the God who never lies, the God who never fails. We thank you for the promise of your grace revealed to Abraham and continued to your servants all the way up until today. We are grateful that we may come to you through the mediation of another, the seed of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has fully satisfied the demands of the law. We thank you that you've set us free from the curse. You've given us your spirit that we might actually walk in your ways, not out of slavish obedience and fear, but in the freedom of the children of God. And we ask that the words of our passage would not be words that just fall to the ground with no effect upon us, but instead they would be upon our hearts that we would believe them and receive these things. And we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.